Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that the same thing Naaman found so many years ago can be found for us today. The cleansing, the white as snow, feeling of being washed by your work, by your power, and by your might. As we think of Naaman, Father, from Syria in his day, we think of Syria in our day. God, that between Syria and Turkey, the 25,000 people who've died from those earthquakes, all the rescuers who are searching through snow and cold, those who are still being found four or five days later, Father, we ask that you would preserve life, that you would give wisdom to the, to the rescuers, God, that you would glorify yourself in the midst of the circumstance, be close to the brokenhearted, and give eyes to see to those who are looking. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you are with us last week, we did begin a journey into uh, the book of 2 Kings, specifically the story of a man named Naaman. We looked at that historically and application-wise, and today we're going to look at the same passage from a very personal story. As I said last week, it's never happened before, but two Chads on one stage. Boom. Wow. So let's give a warm horizon welcome to Chad Williams. Come on down. Yeah, thanks for being here. Thank you. There you go. So Chad is an author, but mostly he's known for being a former Navy SEAL. And we're going to hear his story and building up to how it intersects with where we are today. So uh, maybe, Chad, uh, start by introducing yourself and then tell us kind of what does a SEAL do in contrast to maybe the other different armed forces? So that's a good question. Uh, I remember when I was back home in California, a girl asked me if being a SEAL meant that I worked at SeaWorld or something, as she put it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, SEAL is actually an acronym, and it stands for Areas of Operation, Sea, Air, and Land. To kind of give you guys a feel of what I was doing on land, on the last deployment I was involved in, we are out in Iraq, and given the task of hunting down men that make suicide vests and those roadside bombs, IEDs. And while we're out there, we're working with a group called the ISOF, which is the Iraqi Special Operations Forces, and one mm -hmm. of our goals with these guys is to simply teach them how to fight their own fights. And so the best way to do that is to train them on base, but then beyond that, go outside that wire and fight side by side with them. And if you can imagine a whole deployment going by, I'd say pretty good, because we've bagged and gagged some pretty bad dudes. We're making the world a better place. And coming up on what looked like just enough time on the calendar to do maybe one more operation. And at that point, we weren't really sure if the ISOF was ready for us to be passing that baton off to them. So we decided, hey, for this final operation, why don't we try and make it a sort of graduation operation. We'll let them plan the whole thing from the ground up, and we'll be there with them just in case things go bad. Mm. And so that's what they did, and they came up with this uh, target. This guy was actually an Iraqi policeman by day, uh, but at night back home, as it turns out, he was a bomb maker. And the ISAF felt a little bit uncomfortable because whenever we'd go out and operate, they expressed to us they felt they got shot at more than we did, that it had something to do with uniforms, and they would feel a whole lot better if we just put on their uniforms and blended in with them so that we would get shot at more <laughs> with them. And so, you know, we humored them in that, and, you know, we blended in just fine, and I'm behind the 50 carbon machine gun for this final operation, and we're about to go rolling out, and I know where this guy lives how we're going to get in, grab them, extract. But there's one unique thing I know about this operation that truly makes it different than every operation. I know this is it. This is the final operation, which also means I know just a matter of days from now, I'll be back in my hometown, Huntington Beach, California, surfing in the ocean. Uh, but what none of us really knew about that night was we were actually being set up the entire time to get thrown the absolute 
worst circumstances we've been in on this entire deployment as we find ourselves getting set up on an ambush and suddenly now we're engaging in this gun battle for our lives. Wow. So you are face-to-face, days away, weeks away, at least from going home, about to get ambushed, and like we got our to-do list for the day. Your to-do list was to go after suicide bombers. And the kind of evil you said, you shared with me, that these are like a cowardiceness like we've never seen before. Tell me about the evil and cowardiceness that you're going after here. It would seem they operate on this mode of steal, kill, and destroy. Sound familiar? I mean, that's the ultimate terrorist out there. And that's a whole other global war on terrorism. He, you know, the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. So these guys, they measure success in terms of body count. They're content with the fact that they're going to die, but they don't want to leave it just that. They want to take out as many people with them as they possibly can in the process. And, I mean, we have that reminder even in Afghanistan when they took out 13 of our our service members and and so many more. You know, that's the touch that they're going for. And sometimes they're such cowards, they're not even willing to put on the suicide vest themselves. And they can't find anyone to volunteer to put on the suicide vest. So what they did in one particular case is they took two mentally handicapped women. That had no idea what was going on, and they fashioned these vests onto them, and they went shoving them off into a crowded marketplace as these guys watch from a distance like cowards hiding, and they set it off with the remote, killing these women and obviously so many more. So this kind of gives you the idea of the type of character that we're up against. Wow, so you can just see why one might want to go into the seals. I'm going to protect the innocent. I'm going to push back on evil. Was that always your desire? Like, hey, I was four years old, uh, I had seals in the family, I wanted to be that, or did that come later in life? I think that being born in America, especially as a young kid, you could take for granted the, the freedoms that we enjoy. You don't realize that, you know, they come at a hefty price, the highest price, right? It's, mm. it's our soldier's blood on the battlefield. Right. It was 9-11 when I was in high school that I think really woke me up, kind of how a funeral sometimes is what it takes for you to really appreciate life. Mm-hmm. You know, it took a 9-11 for me to really appreciate the fact that our freedoms are not free. And so that really did spark some patriotism, but it wasn't quite there yet. And I find myself not really knowing what I want to do with my life. And that saying is very true. If you aim at nothing... You will hit it. Hmm. Unfortunately, I was aiming at that and hitting it going into (laughs) junior college. Junior college. How old are you at this point? 18, 19 years old. All my peers passing me by. I'm failing all my classes. It's my own fault because I'm aimless. I'm just ditching, hanging out with friends, going surfing, end of the year coming up, time to take finals. And for whatever reason, it was those big tests that everyone dreads uh, for it to just really hit me and sink in this realization of I'm turning out to be a loser. (laughs) I mean, the kind of guy that no young person wants to be because, you know, when you're young, I think we all get told this from somebody. You know, they tell you, like, hey, the sky's the limit. You can do anything you want to do. Big word potential gets thrown around. And that's all very true. But there does come a certain point in life where you need to kind of question, hey, what trajectory am I on right now? And Mm -hmm. so realizing all my peers passing me by, how do I turn this around? And I think I come up with a brilliant plan. I know what to do with my life. I'll, I'll go become a Navy SEAL. And you said you're sitting in your truck in the parking lot at the community college about to go in and fail, and that's where this revelation comes to you. I don't want to take finals. There's my out. Go try and be a Navy SEAL. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at some point, you need to tell your parents. you got this brilliant plan. You come home. How does Dad react to finding out you're failing everything you're currently planned on, but you're about to do the hardest thing in the world. I tried to set it up right, you know? <laughs> Couch it in such a way to where I got some bad news and some good news. And so I let him know the bad news that he did not know about, that I was failing all these classes. This is news to him. But 
then I'm telling him the good news, though. Yeah, he's like, yeah, what's that? I'm going to go be a Navy SEAL. <laughs> and so you can put yourself in his shoes. Here's your son that hasn't demonstrated the discipline it takes to make it to the local community college. <laughs> but now he's informing you, it's okay, Dad. I'm going to be a SEAL. <laughs> and so I remember him kind of giving me this talk. Like, hey, son, just so you know, mm. joining the military is not like anything you have ever done in the past. This isn't playing ball or skateboarding. This isn't going to the local community college that when you decide you're over it, you could just stop. He says, if you join the military, maybe then you find out it's not for you. Or suppose you quit and don't make it through SEAL training. Hey, just to be clear, you will still be in the military. And you're probably going to pick up a job like chip and paint off some boat off the coast of Japan. <laughs> you might be able to tell those words stuck with me a little yeah. bit. But for whatever reason, that was probably one of the most motivational speeches I could have heard at that time. Because the guy that I was and still am to some degree, you imply that you think that I can't do something. And I think that you really think that. Man, I want to bolt down and I want to prove you wrong. And so that was a motivational one for me right there. Well, and I've heard, uh, obviously, all military training is, is difficult, but specifically, walk us through, you're now in that process, what is um, the training like to, to become a Navy SEAL? The pipeline, if you were to make it straight through that process, is close to two years long. The hardest part, it's called Hell Week, it's five and a half days. In these five and a half days, you get four hours of sleep. That's not per night, that's a grand total. Five and a half, like for the five and a half days, you're going to get four hours. That's it. Wow. And you're running over 200 miles during this time. Typically, you're not running around with the luxury of just carrying your own body weight. You have to carry a telephone log or a boat wherever you go with your boat crew. And this boat spends most of its time on top of your head. And so it literally rubs through the hair, through the skin, in the top of your head. If you're ever visiting Southern California or you're in Coronado, San Diego, you don't need to wonder which of the guys around here going through SEAL training because you'll see these circular scabs on top of up oh, their wow. heads. Wow. And the pressure of this boat is so great on your neck that, just to kind of give you guys this picture, in a class prior to mine, a guy broke his neck underneath one of these boats. And so wow. on top of all this physical exertion, you're also going through... Uh, what's called surf torture. They're putting you out there in the Pacific Ocean. In February is when I went through a wintertime hell week. And you don't get to wear a wetsuit during that time. So that air is so cold. You know the feeling. You go outside early in the morning, the dark hours, and the air just bites. And now you're going into this water that just takes your breath away. And you're jackhammering cold, hanging on to each other's arms. And the instructors are playing head games. They say, hey, we're just going to keep doing this until three of you give up and quit. Mm -hmm. And in order for somebody to quit, they have to voluntarily get up go over to a bell, ring this bell three times in front of everybody, signifying they have quit, take their class helmet with their family name on it, lay it down on the ground, and it just stays there in chronological order, the order that these guys quit in. I think you can see this up on the screen. These are actually the helmets of guys that were in my class. And at the very far end of the screen, off in the distance, it's a slight blur, there's a bell somewhere over there. We started with the class of 173 guys. And by graduation day, there's only 13 of that original class number still mm. standing there. Uh, but, you know, on top of all this physical exertion and sleep deprivation during Hell Week, there is a funny thing to look back on, and it's the hallucinations. I grew up watching Ninja Turtles, uh -huh. and I'm looking down in the water, and I'm telling you, last night at Hell Week, I'm seeing Leonardo popping up <laughs> out of the water. <laughs> looking at me. And so looking back on it, you know, that's pretty funny. But when you're going through it, not so fun. And what I just gave you guys was a five-and-a-half-day snapshot of about a two-year-long pipeline. And so those numbers do speak for themselves how tough it is. Yeah, and it's going to go from 173 to, what was the final number? 13. So 13. that original. And are you kind of from the very beginning, do you go, hey, some of the guys are half committed, some guys are a little committed, who's going to lose? Or what's kind of the, the stature of the people, of your classmates, 
and how are you assessing who's going to make it and who's not, and you know, what's my chances? In our seal creed, it says of the seal that it's the common man with uncommon desire to succeed. And so it's not the uncommon man. It's not the extraordinary man that goes on to accomplish extraordinary things. Seal training is a melting pot, and you have an idea of who you think is going to make it, and you have an idea of who you think is going to wash out right away, and mm. it'll all get flipped upside down. You know, in my class, the, the stud of the class, the guy that was always in front, beating everybody, never a question over who's going to get first place. It's, it's Barth. We're all just kind of debating who's grabbing second, you know, right, like we right, know who's yeah. in first. You know, he's going to make it for sure, right? And then this guy, Alex Gagne, he's the locker room talk. He's the runt of the litter, like not even in consideration. It's like not only is he going to quit, he's going to be the indicator of like the first guy to quit. Well, by the time we get to Hell Week, who's still there? Somehow Alex Gagne is still there. Wow. And who's amongst the first to quit? This guy, Bart, the start of the class. And so what that demonstrates is I think the truth hmm. of this principle of just being a common man with uncommon desire to succeed. The stuff that really counts is actually the stuff that you can't see from the outside looking in. Yeah. It's kind of like how it goes, right? Looking yeah, from know, an outward appearance. Yeah, the Bible says that First Samuel, you know, you know, God looks at the, not the outward appearance like man does, but the inner heart. How did that feel though, that moment that, um, which was the one that kind of had the perfect DNA, what was his name again? What's that? The guy with the perfect DNA, what was his name? Barth. Barth. So yep. what did it feel like that moment when Barth is walking down that road, clang, 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 and you're like, am I going to make it? I mean, did you feel like, well, the stakes are higher, or what would that feel like? It was so shocking and so unreal, and he actually took down a lot of guys with him. Mm. When he went down, there was probably about 20 guys. We huh. call it the floodgates just opened up because wow. they thought to themselves, if he can't do it, I can't do wow. it. And another interesting thing, now that you bring this up, is that guys that would quit would try to get you to quit with them. Mm. And it wasn't enough that they were going to do it. It's that they wanted to try and, and pull you out with them. And there's so many, like, spiritual applications sure, to sure, that, yeah, people that yeah. fall into, you know, sin. And, and so seeing him, that was such a, a shocker. And at the same time, this guy, Alex Gagne, I don't talk about this very often, this guy was one of the biggest motivations to me. When I was really? at one of my lowest moments in Hell Week, he came up to me, and he's telling me, come on, Williams, we could do this. Wow. We got this. And I'm looking at him thinking, like, how are you still even here? And you're motivating me right now. And so that, that guy's just incredible. Let's jump back to your dad then. So your dad hears you say you want to go into training. As a good dad, he's got to figure out how to prepare you for that. Tell me how your dad prepares you and who he introduces you to, who becomes one of your mentors. Well, probably not taking me very serious or thinking he needs to really do me a solid and give me a good test fire to show me that this is not really for you. Uh, he ended up reaching out to a man that was a Navy SEAL. And I didn't know that he'd reached out to this guy in advance. And on the phone call, he basically told him, this is what my son wants to do, he thinks, but he has no idea what he's signing up for. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering if you'd be willing to do me a really big favor. Would you be willing to meet up with my son? And what I'm asking you to do is I need you to just crush him. <laughs> like, bury him. Like, beat this desire of becoming a SEAL out of him. I had no idea that was the conversation. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, in advance. <laughs> I find out over lunch months later about that conversation. All I get told is my dad invites me inside, and he says, so you want to be a SEAL? I'm like, yeah, Dad, I want to be a SEAL. He goes, great. Well, I set up a workout for you with a Navy SEAL. Check out my computer screen. I'm looking at the screen, and all it says in this email is, can Chad come out and play tomorrow? <laughs> and I'm thinking, Play? Like, Dad, let me get this straight. You met someone off the internet who claims to be a SEAL, and now he's saying he wants to play with me, and you're arranging this whole meeting <laughs> right now. 
he's a SEAL, son. So I'm like, all right, I guess I'll go meet up with this guy, very skeptical, go meet up with him in a beach parking lot in Oceanside, California. He looks the part. He looks like something Michelangelo carved out. He's pointing <laughs> his finger at me. You, Chad? Oh, yes, sir. All right, Bubba, come on over here. I wind up out in the wetlands. He lets me take off on a run in the lead, says he'll catch up. Well, I'm looking back, not seeing this guy. And as I'm running a little bit more and not seeing him, I start getting this idea in my head, like, hey, maybe, maybe I'm too fast for this Navy SEAL. He can't <laughs> catch up on the run. And I'm celebrating in my mind now, looking back, and there's like a scene out of Terminator 2. Do you remember the scene with that bad guy, the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie? He could like morph into knife bands and chase down a moving vehicle. Well, that's the Navy SEAL coming down this trail. I mean, he looks like a canine that got let out of the back of a police squad car. He is closing <laughs> in. And I never saw what was coming next. As he caught up to me, I am then greeted by his fist as I'm getting physically assaulted, going into my stomach, getting knocked on the ground, wind out of me, screaming in my face, throwing me around like a rag doll. I still remember that sound of the threads of my shirt ripping and just trying to survive. You have to put yourself in my shoes for a moment here. Remember, at the time, the only intel I'm operating on is some guy, my dad been off the internet, now he's got me on the ground in the wetlands. <laughs> Child predator, this is happening right now. And so I'm just hanging in there, but then these words came through. He says, you want to be a Navy SEAL. You better stay three paces behind me. And something clicked. I realized this is it. This is for real. If I quit right now, I'll forever be a quitter. I just knew in my heart that the way I respond here is going to affect the trajectory of the rest of my life. And so in my heart, I just said, I'm going to die before I quit. Mm. And so he gets up and takes off, and I'm chasing after him. And this went on for miles and I'll tell you what, the suffering I went through in this singular workout, I should call it a beatdown session, <laughs> was greater than any singular workout I ever went through in all SEAL training. But we finally get to a point, you know, where he circles up, he ends it, guy looks like he wants to fight me. I don't want to have any direct eye contact with him to set him off, so I'm thinking, in my mind, just use your peripherals, don't look him in the eyes. <laughs> and he just breaks this really awkward tension by asking me, he says, hey, if we would have gone another mile or two, would you have stayed with me? And I told him what came from the heart. I told him, Scott, I'll die before I quit. He gets this big smile on his face. I mean, completely changes his demeanor. And he's going, great. Hey, you want to meet up again in front of the workout tomorrow? <laughs> and now I'm thinking, like, are we going to address the flashback this guy had on the trail? Like, we need to talk about that. But then I thought, don't bring it up. It might trigger that again. And so come to find out that that was going to be a one-time event. Thankfully, after that, it was no longer a beatdown. It became more of a mm. building up. And I moved on in life from being Bubba to one day, suddenly I become Junior, you know, Scott really <laughs> took me under his wing as, you know, he mentored me and, and he was like a second father to me. Getting and this, ready is, for this training. is you right here. So this is Scott and yep. uh, you uh, doing some bouldering. And he's not just a seal. Your dad having a stumble con like the seal of seals, the guy beat an animal in Man vs. Beast on TV. Tell, tell us exactly who this mentor is so we know just who trained you, who mentored you, and how much it meant that he was, he was saying these words to you. I don't know of any SEAL that holds as many records as he holds. Starting off with, he was the youngest man to ever make it through SEAL training. He completed SEAL training by the age of 17 years old. That's only possible because of the horrible childhood he had growing up. Mm. He got passed around from foster home to foster home. Then the military said, we'll take that kid. Mm. He's a world champion panathlete. That's five events compared to the triathlon you see, televised world champ status. He's the fastest Navy SEAL in the SEAL training obstacle course. Not a SEAL in the world could beat this SEAL. 
And he was the only man to beat the beast at the time on that TV program, Man vs. Beast. They thought, hey, let's get a chimpanzee, train it to run an obstacle course. It'll beat the Navy SEAL. What does Scott do? Pulls the head of that monkey on monkey bars. <laughs> you can watch that on YouTube. And so you can imagine what it's like to have such a phenomenal athlete training me and getting me ready to make it through training. So when he says that, you th you th I think you're ready to get that ball rolling, it was time. Yeah. And he said something even more profound to you, didn't he? he? He actually looked you in the eye at one point and told you something you never told anyone. T take me in that moment. What did that feel like? What exactly did he say? He would often say, you never know who's going to make it. I was kind of waiting for him to say, but I think that you will. And he wouldn't give me that. Right. And it would be car ride after car ride. We're going mountain climbing, kayaking, running. And he'd talk about this. And he'd never say that. And then the last conversation I had with them, as uh, he was letting me know, he is saying, uh, Junior, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anyone I've ever trained before. He says, I know you're going to make it through SEAL training. And so to hear those words from my mentor, I'll never have the words to describe how much that meant to me. Uh, mm. Little did I know that that was going to be the last conversation because then he's going off to Iraq and the timing of it was that he was supposed to just be there a couple months and I was gonna start SEAL training. By the time I got, got started with SEAL training, he'd be back. Uh, but next thing I know, I see him on a TV screen smiling and then in the bottom of the screen, I see his birth date followed by a dash, March 31st, 2004. And before I could process what that meant at the bottom of the screen, it just switches from the smiling image of, of Scott to graphic video footage of a vehicle that is engulfed in flames in Fallujah, Iraq, which turned out to be the very vehicle uh, that he was in, along with three other Americans, hmm. as it was ambushed and these insurgents had videotaped everything that they were doing to him and these others. A lot of you might remember this. It was the Blackwater contractors, as these guys were ripped out of the vehicles, and, and there he is with these three others, and I'm looking through a television screen, the news is playing, these guys just trying to mutilate him with sticks and rods and take rope and wrap it around their legs and they went dragging them through the streets of Fallujah and you could just see the glee on their faces it's a, a celebration a parade and then they strung them upside down from the Euphrates River Bridge and set their bodies on fire and then they look into a camera and they're chanting into the camera repeatedly over and over a message that they wanted us in America to hear specifically and I heard what they were saying loud and clear because they chanted in Arabic Fallujah it's the graveyard of Americans. Fallujah is the graveyard of Americans. And all I could say about that is I'll never have the words to describe. What that moment and all the surrounding moments were like, I went through the full spectrum of just how you deal with grief and emotion, but I landed on this sense of just hatred and revenge. I was not going forward the same person from there. Mm -hmm. That I wanted to get through that TV screen and get at these guys without the training and throw myself at them like recklessly in an attempt just to rip their hearts out. Mm. And so I really became forged in that sort of resolve. Part of our creed is that we are forged by adversity. So adversity in life will either be that, that thing that causes you to utterly fail or you will be forged by it. And the SEAL teams were predetermined to be forged by it. And the forging process for me really began when I remember my mentor's last words to me, when he says, Junior, I know you're gonna make it through SEAL training. Mm -hmm. It became that much more important to me to make it through training, to do this in honor and memory of him, to be a part of his legacy, and again, at the time, I wanted to get some get back. I had hatred in my heart that I'd never experienced before. Mm. And it was so meaningful. So you got one motivation is the honor of this man who had trained you, who believed in you. On the other hand, you have this hatred, so they're kind of mixed in there. Mm -hmm. And you said that Scott meant so much to you, you actually put his name on your helmet. Right? On, the, During on, the on the inside of the, of the hat. You wear a hat through probably 95% of training. Mm -hmm. And so not on the inside cap, but the bill. 
Yeah. So that just you glance right past your eyebrows and you see on the inside mm. bill of that hat. So when you're suffering, when you're getting surf tortured, when you're having to dig deep, I would just drop my eyes up at his name and think to myself, you have to take me out of here in a body bag before I ever quit on that name. It's mm. just, it's not happening. Mm. So then you complete training. You're part of the 13. And the freezing cold of the, the, of the ocean, you said it's 50 degrees. In fact, after your class, they stopped doing it in that cold of water for 10 years because it was so cold. So take me from there to the moment you get that trident. That trident is the representation of welcome to the brotherhood. This is your new identity. So identity before, loser in a junior college parking lot, not making it, all my peers passing me by. I'm below the average Joe. But now fast forward, I'm looking up thinking, Scott, we did this. Mm. I got the family, the friends there. As I'm about to get this trident, the insignia that says this is who you are. Not only was this one of the happiest, most fulfilling moments of my life. Mm. Here's the crazy thing, and I just got to be honest with you all. It didn't take more than 24 hours before I felt like the wind came out of that sail. Everything slowly began to go downhill and circle the drain from that point forward. And I couldn't wrap my mind around why at the time. Because, I mean, I just achieved what I thought was the ultimate. Mm. And it was years later I heard over the radio a Christian philosopher say these words. And I thought, that nails it. On the head, exactly what I experienced at graduation day. And so these, these are the words. And many of you might be familiar with how this experience goes. He says, one of the loneliest, one of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience is when he is achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate. And in the end, it lets him down. Mm. One of the loneliest moments a man will ever experience when he's achieved that which he thought would deliver the ultimate. In the end, it lets him down. What he's referring to right there is something I believe everyone in the room is familiar with at least to some degree. Mm. Sometimes we talk about it as the human condition. Mm. Sometimes we refer to it as, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side. Mm. You know, not quite satisfied, not quite content, not fulfilled with where we're at. You know, well, what do you want? I just want a little bit more. Right. And so we buy into this belief that, you know, we're just missing something. If I could just get this goal, this achievement, maybe make this amount, maybe what I'm missing in my life is a significant other. I need a spouse. Maybe what we need are some kids running around the home. Maybe we need a bigger home. Maybe we need these toys over here. And we buy into this belief thinking that if I just had that, then I would be satisfied. And so what happens is, is you develop these goals. You get them in your crosshairs. You're aiming at them. Mm -hmm. It leads to the good stuff. It leads to whatever it takes. Yeah. You'll go through the hard work, the blood, sweat, tears, determination. And have you ever had that moment where you hit your target? You got exactly what you wanted. You eat that moment up, that thing you hungered for. But what happens? You're satisfied, but the satisfaction doesn't last. We don't panic here. We just do a little reflection. A light goes off in our head. Oh, the reason this didn't give me lasting fulfillment like I thought, it's simple. I didn't go for something big enough. I need to raise the bar. <laughs> and so that's what we do, right? We, we aim higher. And now we're thirsting after that new goal. It's the same old thing. You get there, you drink it up, you're satisfied, hungry, thirsty all over again. It's like a vicious cycle. And seemingly there just is no end, but there is an end point. And that is the whole point. You know, the big question is this. What happens when you finally arrive at a place where you no longer like all the previous times before, can reason within and say, oh, I know what to do. I just need to go to the next rung of the ladder. You can't do that this time. Well, why not? You're at the last rung of the ladder. Hmm. You can't say, well, I'll just gain a little more elevation, climb higher. No, not this time. You're at the peak of the mountain. And there's nothing left to climb. Hmm. And yet, like all of the other times before, you're hungry, you're thirsty for more, 
But this time, unlike all the other times, this time there is no next to go to. One of the loneliest moments a man or woman will ever experience is when you have achieved that which you thought would deliver the ultimate, and in the end, it lets you down. We see this in the lives of professional athletes, rock stars, movie stars. You've experienced it in your own life personally. And for me, my version of gaining the whole world, climbing to the very top, was becoming a Navy SEAL. And I still felt hungry and thirsty for more. And I couldn't conceive of any more elevation going up from there. And so really what was going on was this. I think Jesus, he frames it perfectly. He says, what's it profit a man if he gains the whole world but in the end loses his soul? That was my version of gaining the whole world, but I was still missing the most important thing. My soul was not oriented correctly with my creator, and so I had no peace with my maker. And so since I had no peace with my maker, nothing here on earth was ever going to give me any kind of true, genuine peace. Yeah, I think a lot of us don't realize how deep our souls are, Mm. and that you think, well, to your point, if I could just find something big enough, it would fill this hole. But you're trying to fill an eternal space with a temporal item. It doesn't matter how big or grand or grandiose, it, it won't fully and finally satisfy. So here you are, all that's wrestling through your head, bouncing around. And what in the world brings you to church or God or you're quoting Jesus now? Were you a religious person at the time? Not at the time. I could look back. I would say, hey, I believe in God. You know, if I want to get through SEAL training, I certainly want God on my side. I wasn't (laughs) an atheist by any means, but I grew up in America, so I'm Christian, right? Uh You know, my family were Christian, so yeah, put me down for Christian on my dog tag. Uh, And so I was one of those guys where if I fell into trouble, I would call out to God, and I knew I was not living a life that was he would be pleased by. And so it's like, if you get me out of this one, I promise I'll follow you. Yeah. And then it would seem like I escaped the situation and you get some spiritual amnesia. Like, oh, what was that deal I made? Yeah. I, don't, I don't remember. And so coming out of, uh, you know, SEAL training, becoming a SEAL, getting put on SEAL Team 1, you would think that I'm living on top of the world. But again, I'm just I'm miserable underneath it all. But I'm not going to play that off in front of anyone. So I play it off like I'm living a dream. I'm a rock star. I got it all together. But mm. the truth was I was more miserable at that stage of my life than I'd ever been. I still had all that hatred. I thought if anything to look forward to, you know, getting a little get back from my mentor overseas, I felt like I just didn't feel anymore. Mm. And so what was it that made me feel? Is go out, cut loose with the guys, and drink, drink into an oblivion to the point of stupidity, just personal robbery. You know, waking up in places that I don't even know how I got here. Mm. And then, you know, having some stranger, hey, bud, you know, do you remember what you did last night? And no, and they're telling you, and you're trying to laugh it off as if it's something to laugh about when, Mm. when, you know, looking back, it's just shameful. And so here I am just kind of in a way throwing it all away. I'm a seal, you know, but I'm also destroying my life, like personally Mm. speaking. I put my family through a lot. I mean, I came home putting blood all over the walls like a maniac, not even remembering it, needing 26 stitches in my knuckles. And so... One of the next days, they're inviting me, begging me to go to church because they kind of see how they think that I'm losing it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think, all right, I'll go. I'll suffer through this church thing with them. I'll punch my card in. But I actually had plans of going out drinking later that night. Figured I'll suffer through it. It's an evening thing. It'll be over by 9, 10 o'clock at night. I don't even plan on going out till 10 o'clock at night. So I'll go, mm-hmm. punch my card in. They'll be so happy I went. We'll go back home. I'll fall off the radar. They'll go to bed, and I'll go do what I wanted to go do. I had... A keg of beer staged that I'd stolen with some old high school friends. I'm here back in my old hometown, just going mm. backwards. Mm. And so we're there, and there's a man speaking that night, and he brings up this story from 2 Kings chapter 5, that story of Naaman. And if you guys recall the story of Naaman, he's a guy that's had success. 
He's a guy that knows what that tastes like, right? He has had great success in battle. He's got an entourage of men that highly respect him. Look at the status that he has, like that trident, this mighty man of valor. Guy sounds like he could have been a seal, had there been such a thing during his time. Mighty man of valor, but he's a leper. And leprosy during his time, it was just, let's say it's a little worse than a case of eczema, right? Yeah. Jesus, looking back, said nobody during the time in Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. And so it's terminal. He's a dead man walking. Well, as I was listening to that, it's like, man, how quickly I relate with that guy. Because I wear the armor of being a seal, like I've got it all together on the outside. But the reality is, underneath it all, I feel like I'm deteriorating. I'm falling apart. I felt like that dead man walking. And maybe many of you in the room can relate with that person as well. You know, just by the law of averages, when you think about it, who are you? Who are you in front of your coworkers? What kind of front are you putting on? What kind of armor are you wearing in front of them? Like, it's all good. I'm good. When in reality, underneath it all, they really have no idea what is going on. Hmm. And so no doubt about it, Naaman has probably tried everything he could do to fix himself with this problem. But he can't fix himself. Unsung hero in the story, little girl, she's the evangelist. She speaks up, says, if you go see the prophet in Israel, he'll heal you of your leprosy. He decides to go. As far as he's concerned, it's some experimental treatment. I'll give it a go. He's bringing bringing all the money in his savings account. He's prepared to dump it all out, the equivalent of millions upon millions of dollars in gold, silver. He gets there. Guy doesn't come to the door. Relays a message. Go dip yourself in the Jordan River seven times. When you come up, your flesh will be restored. Naaman's response, furious. (laughs) I mean, could you imagine? You just came all this way with his men and this guy... And so he's leaving in a rage. He's venting out loud, talking about what his expectations mm, were. Mm. He was expecting this guy to come out of his place and wave his hand over the place and put on some special effects. Like he thought it was going to be something from Disney probably, right? Right, right. Like he's going to call in the name of the Lord his God and strike the leprosy away. But instead he gets told to just go, go dip in this water. And so in his mind that just sounds like foolishness. He even says, I got cleaner water where I'm from in Damascus. Mm. So as he's leaving in this rage... Even if it caught it, which is a real problem, it's his pride, yeah. his ego, it's way deeper. That leprosy is just a surfacey symptom. Hmm. Thankfully, Naaman's surrounded by some men that care about him. And I'm sure they don't know exactly how this works, but they know this much. We need to get our name back there in front of that God of Israel. Get him in front of the God of Israel. Step back and let the fireworks take place. Let God do his thing. Hmm. And so Naaman decides to do it. And I think that Naaman understands at this point now, I think the conviction is there that, you know what, it's not the water. It is the God of Israel that will do this. Mm. And so in order for me to live, in a sense, I must die. This walk I'm about to make is like a walk to my own funeral. It seemed like foolishness to dip in that water. It made no sense to him. It's almost like the New Testament says the preaching of the cross is what? Foolishness to those that are perishing. But now Naaman realizes just the, the devastating state that he is in and walking into that water in an act of faith and trust, dipping himself seven times when he comes up. The God of Israel did the heavy lifting. The God of Israel did the hard part, and he cleansed him of that leprosy. The picture in the, in the Hebrew language was that he had brand new skin like that of a baby. Mm. Well, I remember listening to this and just feeling inspired. And at the same time, I've been to the movies before. I know this is the end of the movie. And so now it's time to, like, stop vicariously living through a character. And now it's time to, you know, get ready to go back outside and, and just embrace the life that I have. But the credits don't roll in the movie right there. Hmm. that just as God provided a way out for Naaman, he's provided a solution or way out for all of us. Hmm. And it doesn't come in the form of dipping ourselves into some water. What God did is he dipped his son down into the world on a rescue mission. And that leprosy, if you haven't caught it yet, is a picture of us spiritually speaking apart from God. We are spiritual lepers. 
You know, we are spotted and blotted and blemished, and there's nothing we could do to get the spiritual leprosy, our disease, S-I-N positive, off of ourselves, just like Naaman couldn't get the disease off of himself. Mm. But God, God has provided a way out. And so at the cross, what Jesus did is here he comes to this world. He lives a holy, perfect, sinless life. Not for one split second did he have any spots or blots on him, but he Mm. trades skin with you and I. He takes our leprosy, our sin, as it were, upon himself so we could be lavished with God's grace and his mercy, paying for the penalty of our sin in full at the cross, rising again from the grave, conquering death. And from that conquering death, from that resurrected life, he declares, because I live, you also shall live. But remember, what's the turning point? Naaman needed to turn. Interestingly, Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, they must deny self. Mm. It's taking this old way of life, this I am going to do it my way. I am going to find fulfillment in ABC, becoming a Navy SEAL. It just doesn't add up because we're not made for that. What we're made for is to know our creator. And once you know him, then you have that peace. And so not knowing that at the time going through SEAL training, but now I'm realizing this is what I exist for, is to know my maker. I responded to that message. And I experienced the truth of the scriptures. It says, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. I was turning from the old life. I put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. I looked at him like basically as a Savior. He saved me from my sin, that leprosy I can't get off. And as my Lord, my thinking on it was like this. He's like my assault leader. Hmm. And my assault leader tells me how I ought to shoot, move, and communicate. Hmm. Well, as Jesus, as my Lord, he's the one that informs me in the Gospels how I ought to look at things and think about things Hmm. and operate in Hmm. life. And so him as my assault leader, I had a whole different outlook then on being a SEAL. Before, I was trying to be a seal, and God really wasn't a part of it. Mm. And so it was kind of me, 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 and that's like decaf. It won't deliver for you, ever. Don't waste your time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you can flip it around. <laughs> you can say, instead of for me, I'm going to do this for thee. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Mm. You could be a stay-at-home mom in the name of the Lord. You could be corporate construction world. You could be a seal for Christ. Mm. And so that was my outlook. And so I could actually go back to being a seal and enjoy it in a way I never enjoyed it before. And it's proper category where it always belonged. It didn't belong in the number one preeminent place in my mm. life. Only God can live up to that position. Yeah. When God is where God belongs in the throne of your heart, everything else takes its proper place, and then you can enjoy it in a way that you never truly enjoyed it before. So that was my outlook. Now I'm a seal for Christ as I'm rolling out on that final operation. And all these pieces kind of come to a head when you get to that ambush. So you're in this ambush. You've told your buddies that you're a Christian now, and they're not sure they can trust you. You're in Felucia, yeah. the very place that your mentor had been, you're in ambush, something in head. Show, t- tell me kind of how all that happens and what happens in that final moment. I think the thinking for some people, right, that aren't Christians is like, how could you be a Christian and be a Navy SEAL? <clears throat> as, if there, as if there's some kind of contradiction. Like, doesn't it say somewhere in the Bible, thou shalt not kill? Well, the word actually is ratosh, it's, it's murder, murder, right? It's to take innocent life. So that's not the case. And even in Romans chapter 13, the New Testament makes the point that, look, the government does not bear the sword in vain. We are to be avengers, you know, to those that commit evil. But it made no sense to some of the guys. And one particular guy was giving me a very hard time. It made no sense to him. So he's telling me, yeah, you know, Williams, it probably is good. It is good that you're getting out after this Now deployment. you're weak. Now you're weak. Yeah, and that kind of hurt a little bit. I'm like, why are you saying that? He goes, well, who knows if you really could cover my back if I needed you to. 
And that's really hurtful to hear. And I'm trying to explain to him, like, look, man, I have no problem doing what we do professionally speaking. There is a just cause for it. Well, he didn't even want to hear it. It made no sense to him. And so that was hurtful to hear from a teammate. Well, now we're in this ambush, and there's a group of guys that are caught in this position where they don't have real cover. They just have concealment. There's a difference. Concealment is like hiding behind something that bullets can go through. Cover actually will cover you from the bullets. They got concealment. And so they're calling out for help because there was a guy that had the high ground on them. He was shooting down on top of them from a balcony. And so my vehicle is the one that responds. I'm the guy that's up there on the 50 cal, half exposed. And so now we're giving these guys cover with the vehicle, protecting them with our up-armored vehicle. They're yelling to me and lasering on the wall. They're showing me where this guy's shooting from. And now I'm returning fire with that 50 cal that could really reach out and touch somebody. And I just let that weapon do what that weapon does. And basically, let's just say the threat was no longer a threat. <laughs> And one of the guys that was down there that basically was like rescued, saved, protected, was screaming because he didn't know who it was, but he's excited, right? And he saw what happened, and he's like, yeah, in colorful language, who is that up there? Because I'm up on this thing. He doesn't know who it is. And it was the guy that was just telling me the day before, who knows if you could really cover my back? And I'm, it's Williams. Yep, the <laughs> Christian. <laughs> and you, you said it was interesting because we, we say the, the, the story of Naaman last week. Here's this girl who's telling people about Jesus or about the God of Israel. Then you have his servants pointing him back to God. Just all these different friends that point him. And you just see how it was your dad, uh, Scott, your circumstances that God used. And part of that shirt you wear today is really your chance to make an excuse to lead people to Christ. Tell me about that. You told me that this morning. It's just so cool. Yeah, because in the SEAL teams, we wear this bone frog. We're known as frogmen, but we wear a bone frog to honor and remember fallen frogmen. Fallen frogmen like, you know, Michael Mansour, he was a SEAL that jumped on a hand grenade. Hmm. And he absorbed the blast of that grenade where he could have saved himself. He absorbed the blast of that grenade uh, all to save other guys that were on the roof. That's a picture of what Jesus did at the cross, hmm. if you think about it. Hmm. He absorbed the blast. Not of a hand grenade, he absorbed the wrath of our sin. And so he covered our sin for us so that we could pass by that grenade, as it were, and live forever. So mm. the bone frog, it's got a cross that's in there. So it honors these guys that have shed their blood for our earthly freedom. And those words on the back of the shirt might sound familiar. Greater love is known than this one that lays down his life for his friends. Honors these guys that shed their blood for our earthly freedom. Uh, but it was also somebody that said that. And people always ask about the frog. And then they love the words. Like, I like those words on the back. Who said that? Because there's no reference. They're like, was that Socrates? Like, no, that wasn't Socrates. Uh, that was actually the Savior. So just as these guys shed their blood for mm. our earthly freedom, the Savior who said those words, he shed his blood for your eternal freedom. And in the airport, mall, wherever it is, mm. it's always the same response. I never thought about it that way before. Mm. Mm. Uh, and so that's what the bone frog is uh, all about yeah. and so for the us same, in the SEAL teams. Same way the little girl glorified God in her circumstances. Naaman's not glorifying himself when he goes back to his commander and you're trying to do the same thing. Well, if that's something you're interested in, he's got shirts available because I know it's been a tool for you. Well, lastly, um, there's a quote you gave me that I heard you give in an interview that really has been a, a framework for your life. What does it look like for God to be not only your assault? Uh, what was the term you use, assault commander? Assault commander. Yeah, your yeah. assault commander, yeah. but also for God to be your trainer. Um, what does it mean when God lets us go through difficulty or trials? There's a little poem you referenced. Mm. And uh, just let us think about what it looks like, what God may have some of us in trials and difficulties, things we don't like. Tell us that poem and why it's meant so much to you. Yeah, because I think that kind of in American Christianity in general, right, the message has kind of changed a little bit to like if you become a Christian, there's this expectation from some places that somehow your life is just going to get better. It's going to enhance it. 
God's going to breathe life into your dreams and help your startup get going. And I hope so. You know, I hope that you can bask in the sun and enjoy. But the Christian life is not a playground. It is a battleground. Jesus says in this life, you will have trouble. We are going to be dashed upon the rocks at some point. And mm -hmm. it's what you do when that storm comes that really makes you a man or a woman and what type of Christian man or woman you are. The difference is, is you don't go through these trials the same. Before, you did go through them alone. Now you have Jesus who says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so this anonymous poem, I think it captures this picture that we see in all of our lives, how God is operating in our lives. It goes like this. It says that when God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods and watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay, which only God understands. While man's tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how God bends, but he never breaks when it's man's good that he undertakes. And how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. And so we might not know what he is up to, but we do need to remember that God knows what he is all about. Mm -hmm. On that note, let me pray for us. Maybe you want to either have that, that new birth that he had, that fresh skin that he had, um, is what Jesus calls the new birth of finding your identity in him. Or maybe you want to understand that you can trust God to be your assault commander in your life. Let's pray together. Maybe you want to pray in your own heart these words. Just say, God, you know what's going on beneath the surface. You know the emptiness under my armor. And I need your forgiveness. But more than that, I apologize for replacing you with something. I want you to be my identity. Your death and resurrection to be my identity. And I invite you to be my assault commander. Train me, conform me into your image. Amen.